Well, as I said earlier, we're going to spend much of this year ahead working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a book that tackles a host of different issues, divisions in the church, sex and sexuality, what we eat, what we do, and how we behave when we gather together as a church. It shows us how every part of our lives is impacted by Jesus' death and his resurrection. Uh, Corinth was a major port city in the ancient world. It had lots of temples to Greek and Roman gods. It was a big economic center. It was a place where the newest ideas took shape. Uh, Paul, who was sent by Jesus, spent a year and a half there proclaiming the message about Jesus. And many became followers, forming a church community. You can read about it in Acts 18. But after Paul moved on, he started getting reports that everything wasn't quite as it should be. The Corinthian church had been richly blessed by God, but it was also plagued by many problems. Now, the central idea that runs through the letter is that of unity, a unity that's expressed in love because of Jesus' death and his resurrection. Listen to chapter 1, verse 10, for example. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Jealousy, boasting, self-centeredness, mistrust, these things had come to characterize their relationships with each other, and it showed So this issue of division and the call to unity run from start to finish through the letter. Now, Paul is going to begin the letter focusing on the cross of Christ, and he will end it focusing on the resurrection and therefore on the hope that we have for the future. In between, he addresses all of the problems. In each section, he first describes the problem, and then he responds to it with some part of the truth about the cross and resurrection. He shows these Christians that how they're living doesn't fit with the reality of what Jesus has accomplished for them. The gospel, you see, isn't just good moral advice. It's the power of God to gather people like us around Jesus and then change us from the inside out so that we love each other. Now, that sounds foolish to the world. The cross as the wisdom of God. The cross as the power of God. But this is the upside-down wisdom of our God. And so we're going to see that in 1 Corinthians, the gospel can be summarized using just three words. Faith, hope, and love. Faith in the cross of Christ. Paul will talk about the message of the cross as God's power to save people. That's the message that he proclaimed, so that the faith of the Corinthians, so that our faith would rest on God's power alone. Faith in the cross of Christ, hope in his resurrection. You see, Jesus has been raised. If he hasn't, then our faith is meaningless. It's the resurrection of Jesus that gives us hope not just for this life, for this age, but for the age 
to come as well. Faith in the cross of Christ, hope in his resurrection, and love as the natural expression of that faith and hope. Love is the expression of our unity as we are joined to Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. That's what holds the book together. 1 Corinthians is going to model for us how to see every part of life through the lens of the gospel and therefore how to live as a church that is united in Jesus. I hope you're excited. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. There's so much to challenge us from this book um, and, and I can't wait to get through all of it with all of you. So today's reading is Corinthians 1, 11 to 17. That can be found on page 1144. That's page 1144. A church divided over leaders. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and, and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Thank you, Michelle. Well, please keep your Bibles open. We'll uh, work our way through those uh, first few verses from um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, pray with me. Father, as we've just sung, would you work powerfully among us now by your Spirit? Show us Jesus through your word. Show us the riches we have in him. And strengthen us in hope, giving us faith to turn from our individual preferences to love each other. Amen. How do you see yourself? What is it that makes you, you? What sets you apart from others? Is it perhaps your ethnic heritage? Is it where you went to school? Or which side of the river or railway line or highway that you grew up on? Your accent, maybe? Or how you dress? Or your role at work? Or whether you work? Or the political party you support? See, these sorts of things take on great significance in our lives. They shape who we are as people and how we relate to each other. Corinth was full of the successful. Oh, they were there to make a name for themselves. These were the sophisticated, well-spoken trendsetters of their day. In some ways, not that different from London. There's some part of us that wants to be successful, established, 
well thought of. But the Corinthians were also proud. It wasn't just this is who I am, but this is who I am over against that. See, Crispus, for example, that we read about here, he was a prominent Jew. He used to be the ruler of the synagogue before he became a follower of Jesus. Gaius, on the other hand, was a wealthy Gentile. He probably had a house that was about the same size as the synagogue, so the Christians had somewhere to meet when the Jews kicked them out. See, in those days, Jews and Gentiles didn't get along. The Jews tended not to eat with Gentiles. They thought of them as dogs. One might have said, I'm a Jew, not a Greek. I follow Peter. Someone else may have said, well, I'm not a backwards Jew. I'm more sophisticated than that. I follow Apollos. I wonder what it is for you, even if you wouldn't say it out loud. What sets you apart from others? Who are the people that you really don't want to be lumped up with? See, God is saying that these things should not define us. If that's where we're looking for our significance, we're looking in the wrong place. Uh, look down with me at, at verse 2. Actually, let me just read these first couple of verses to you. Uh, verse 1. Uh, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes uh, to the church of God in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul is writing here to the church of God in Corinth, but that is not what sets them apart. Do you see that they are the church of God in Corinth, those sanctified? In other words, set apart in Christ Jesus. He also says that they are called to be his holy people. In other words, they are set apart as belonging to him. That is what defines them. Uh, together, they have been set apart for Jesus. Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, successful and struggling, educated and not. Uh, together, they were set apart to belong to Christ. But that wasn't how the Corinthians behaved. They each saw themselves as better than everyone else. They got used to looking down on each other. We do that too, don't we? It's not just them. We find something in ourselves to be proud of and then think, hey, look at me. Look at who I am. Look at what I've done. See, these verses would have been a hard opening to a letter for them to hear. But then it gets even harder. Uh, to those who are set apart in Christ Jesus, together with all those everywhere. Now, that's every house where they gathered in Corinth, and then more widely in God's church across the world. Uh, to 
to all those set upon in Christ Jesus, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their God and ours. Who is it for you? Who is it most annoying to be lumped together with? Well, he's their Lord and yours. See, Jesus is the one who defines you. Nothing else should take his place. And why is it that Jesus has such prominence? Why should he be the defining factor in my identity, my life experience, my heritage, my education, my hard-earned success, my everything else? Well, because everything comes from him. The Corinthians were proud of their status, their knowledge, their gifts. Normally, when we say that we're gifted, we mean it in a proud way, don't we? Look at these wonderful abilities that I have. Well done, me. But the idea of a gift is exactly the opposite. It's something that you haven't bought for yourself. Something you haven't achieved. Something you haven't earned. It's been given to you. Gifts shouldn't have made the Corinthians proud, and they shouldn't make us proud. Gifts should celebrate the giver. And so the first thing to draw your attention to from verses 4 to 9 God wants us to celebrate his grace to us in Jesus. Now listen, listen to these words from verse 4. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift. That's stunning to hear, isn't it? That you, in verse 4, is, is plural. It's referring to the whole church. The Corinthians had been richly blessed by God in every way. They had it all. There is nothing they lacked. Who likes gifts here? Ah, oh, great. People are honest. I like that. <laughs> I know kids are honest, and they, they'll just shout out they love gifts. But we love gifts too, don't we? It's amazing to get stuff. But instead of delighting in their gift-giving God, rejoicing that they had been set apart in Him, the Corinthians used their gifts to set themselves apart from each other. Christians do that sometimes. Look how much I have. You've got so little. Well, gee, I guess I must be better than you, right? But is he a cheapskate, our God? Has he only given you a little? You can almost hear the underlying complaint. Is God holding out? 
Well, the answer is a resounding no. He, he has enriched us in every way. You don't lack any gift. You see, these, these words are drawing our attention, our focus, away from us, away from what we have and the gifts we've been given to the giver of those gifts. We need to see him. See, our God is a, is a God who loves to give gifts. It's who he is. It's intrinsic to his being. His generosity overflows. He, he is extravagant in showing kindness to the undeserving. Think of the simple things that we enjoy. We have a creator God who has filled the world with delightful tastes. Ripe strawberries, freshly baked bread, honey, freshly brewed coffee. He didn't have to. Eating could have been as functional as filling your car with petrol. But it's not. Why did God make food taste good? Why did God make eating enjoyable? Because he loves to give good gifts. The same is true of sex. It's true of our sense of smell, of our sense of sight. God's creation reflects a richness and beauty that shows us his extravagance. He loves to give good gifts. And so what's emphasized in these verses is the abundance, the completeness of the gifts that he's given to his church. Whatever we were, God has called us now to be his holy people. That's verse 2. He's called us to be in fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 9. God shows us grace in covering over our sin, in cleansing us, in uniting us with his son Jesus, that we may share in fellowship with him. And because of that, together we would be set apart as his people. That's the message of the cross, what God has graciously given us in Jesus. And we don't just share in the cross, we, we also share in his resurrection. So at the end of verse 7, we eagerly wait for the day our Lord Jesus will be revealed. We have confidence not just for this age, but for the next. God is faithful, as verse 9 says. Whatever our experience in this life, he will keep those who are his until he returns. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it phenomenal to have a God who is so generous? That while we wait, he has given us everything we need? How rich are we? How rich? Your God is not stingy. He's not holding out. He has not given you little. He has given you everything. The thing is, we have an amazing ability to distort and misuse his gifts. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. It's like when someone gets the p 
perfect gift for a kid. And the kid rips open the package, spends about five seconds looking at it, and then gives hours of their time and energy to playing with the box. It, it happens often. And then, of course, the fighting ensues with their siblings for the box. That's what the Corinthian church did. That's what we do. We have a grace-giving God. But you and I have a strange relationship with God's grace. We so easily distort it. Back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they have abundant provision. Anything and everything they could possibly imagine. But then Satan, the grace twister, comes along and he asks, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? See, he takes grace and makes it look like God is stingy, like God is holding out. Or the Israelites in the wilderness, abundant, miraculous quail and manna from heaven to feed them. But again, that grace is twisted. Ugh. Same old manner again, they complain. It's the pattern right through the Bible. God, the lavish grace giver. Satan, the grace distorter. The church ought to be shining out into the culture. But Satan works to distort God's grace and bring the culture into the church. We end up questioning God's character. Is he really good? Is he really for us? And then we misuse his gifts. Friends, we need to see our grace-giving God. That's how we worship him. It's when we turn from looking at mirrors to see him as he is that we also see ourselves rightly. We realize that we are weak and needy people, uh, that we depend on his generosity for every breath and every blessing. Instead of becoming grace distorters, we will become grateful receivers of God's lavish kindness. And we will celebrate him with praise. That's what clear sight gives us. There's a shawarma franchise called Anath. That might mean nothing to you, but we love it. Their slogan is, make it your way. You choose your protein, they, they carve it straight off the grill. You can have a hummus, a chili paste, tahini, whatever you like. And then there's all the fillings, a whole line of them. You can choose as many as you like, no extra cost. Don't like aubergines? That's fine, move on. It is the perfect takeout because you can tailor your shawarma to your exact preferences with no compromise. You'd love it. Now imagine you could do that with church. Build your own church. Set up just the way you like it. What fillings would you choose? 
Go on, play along with me. <laughs> How many songs? Which ones? Hymns or more modern songs? Bass and drums or the organ? What time would you gather on a Sunday? Would you gather on a Sunday? How long is the sermon? What's the style of the preaching? Would it be a more liturgical service or much more spontaneous? So many choices, but you could set it all up just the way you wanted. No compromise. Would that be the perfect church? See, God is the grace-giving, gift-giving God. Surely, we want to make church as great as it can be for each of us. We should maximize God's gifts to us by tailoring them to our individual preferences. Right? Well, left to our own devices, that is exactly what each of us naturally thinks. And that's why God speaks these words to us. Because thinking that way will result in anything but the perfect church. That is what had happened in Corinth. See, instead, God is calling us to unite around Jesus. Verse 10 expresses a a phenomenal aspiration, doesn't it? I'll read it again. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. That we agree, that we have the same mind, that there are no divisions among us. Phenomenal, right? But in verse 12, the build-your-own-church mentality had produced several factions. One says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. That's Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. As he Paul had founded the church, he was a passionate guy. Of course, some people would love him. Oh, there's Apollos. A powerful preacher, great thinker, able to engage with Greek philosophy. Still, there's Peter. Well, we don't have all the details. Uh, Maybe he was the Jew's Jew. Or maybe as a converted fisherman, he was just a regular guy people could connect with. But another group forms. And then, of course, there's the I follow Christ group. You've got to love them. That's probably where I'd be. (laughs) But do you hear the self-righteousness? You know, you follow the big-name preachers. None of that for us, thank you. It sounds good, but it makes exactly the same mistake as all the other groups. And do you see how all of those statements begin in the same way? Each of them begins with a big, fat I. Now, in the original, that's really emphatic. It's, it's as if it's in bold and underlined. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I like hymns. I need less distraction. I like Tahini. It's the I, me, my way of being church that undermines both our gifts and the giver of our gifts. 
See, this is what happens. We are a, a church that is gathered around Jesus. Now, that looks okay, right? Everyone seems happy enough. But it doesn't take long for the I, me, my mentality to get hold of us. And we break up into different groups around different issues, different preferences. Now, it may not seem at first like that's a very big deal. And after all, we're different people. We, we like different things, you know. Just because I like tahini doesn't mean you have to. But do you see why it matters? Verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? You, you may think it's just personal preference, but if the church is divided, it makes it look as if Christ is divided. It's as, each, it's as if each group has grabbed a bit of Jesus and pulled it towards them, and we rip Jesus apart. One group may say, look, we like Jesus' love, but we're going to ignore his judgment. Another group, we like his teaching, but he's not talking about us. It's, it's that group over there that needs to hear what he says. Another group, you know, Jesus was all about breaking the rules, and so we shouldn't be so hung up about this whole holiness thing. Do you see what happens? Is Christ divided? Jesus Christ died. His body was broken. But it was broken to build a united church. One faithful church with diverse local expressions. United to him and so to each other. Placing my preferences above others. Taking pride in my gifts above others. It's completely out of place for those who've been rescued by the cross of Christ. There is one Lord, one church, one baptism. And so rather than uh, divide around people, around preferences or gifts, the message of the cross calls us to unite around Jesus. That is what sets us apart. It's not, this is who I am, over against those sorts of Christians over there. It's, this is who we are in Jesus. And as we move towards Jesus, we funnily enough discover that we move towards each other. He has set us apart as one body to belong to him. And so back to where we started. How do you see yourself? What sets you apart from others? You see, the, uh, the call of this introduction to 1 Corinthians is, is to stop looking in a mirror, but to look at God through his word. Because it's when we see God rightly when we see him as the lavish, grace-giving God that he is, that we begin to see ourselves rightly 
as needy, dependent people, I realize that I'm not any better than anyone else. I'm just the same as you. I'm just as desperately in need of God's grace. It's when we see him as he is, when we see him as the extravagant gift-giving God, that we place our preferences and gifts to one side. And so we pursue unity with each other around Jesus. Perhaps this week, as you go about your day, and you notice yourself reinforcing your identity in relation to other people, you can remember this. You can remind each other of this and shift your focus to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly, Heavenly Father, please will you give us eyes to see your extravagant generosity. May we delight in your grace. And Father, help us to see ourselves as we are and so to relate rightly to each other. In your power, will you unite us around Jesus? Amen.